So I had a plan to start tonight's talk by telling a story uh, about a conversation I had with my friend and colleague and teacher, Sharon Salzberg, about 15 years ago. And I will tell you that story, but in between when I had that plan and when I, here we are now, last night I read um, an essay by uh, Adam Gopnik, and those of you who read The New Yorker or follow Adam Gopnik will know that he writes wonderful essays for The New Yorker and he's written a couple of books. And he's a wonderful young writer. And um, in, a, in a book uh, called um, uh, Beyond the Children's Gate, I think, or Through the Children's Gate, He's writing about living with his uh, young family, his young children, and his wife, Martha, in New York City after having returned from living for seven years in, in France. And uh, he tells a story about his uh, daughter, Olivia, who was probably uh, five years old at the time of this story. And he said, uh, he's telling that he and his wife were, he and Martha were becoming a little bit concerned because Olivia had developed some uh, secret invisible playmate. And their friends reassured them that it's not unusual for children to have uh, invisible playmates that they talk to. But her invisible playmate, Charlie Ravioli, uh, <laughs> had uh, complicated friendships, he had relationships, he met people, and uh, they would have conversations about what is Charlie Ravioli doing. He said, well, he went to his gym today and he had a meet with his agent and uh, 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 he ran into a friend and, and using these particular idioms. And he's telling the story because it's so cute because that sounds like New Yorker talk. I, I went to the gym and I met my agent and I ran into so-and-so. So here's this, whole fi this five-year-old with this whole story about Charlie Ravioli. And, it unfolds over some weeks and months, one has the, the, the impression from reading this article. And at some point, uh, Olivia informs him that uh, Charlie Ravioli has gotten married. He's married a woman named Quida. <laughs> and uh, he's decided that he'll spell it K-W-E-E-D-A, not Q-U-E-E-D-A because she sounds more like an Ethiopian princess than a Romanian princess. But so it's very complicated. But she, he said, uh, uh, when he's writing this particular uh, part that I'm reading, uh, that I was reading, he said, um, uh, Olivia remarked to Martha at lunch today, quite matter-of-factly, Mommy, I'm sorry to tell you that Quida died. And, and Martha said, I'm sorry to hear that. What did she die of? And Olivia said she died of a disease called bitterosity. <laughs> and Adam Gopnik goes on to say, what could bitterosity be? And then he decided, well, since it's mostly New Yorkers that Olivia has heard, he thinking about the kind of uh, icon that New York is, as a place where people will come and make good in show business or get in a play or get known in, uh, in, in the writing circles. And he said that maybe uh, bitterosity is particularly a New York disease that people come. He decided that bitterosity, he said, was uh, jealousy, resentment, and disappointment. And I thought to myself, that sounds like greed, hatred, and delusion. Jealousy, resentment, 
and disappointment, delusion, in the sense that uh, thinking when things aren't a certain way, that they should be that way. If they should be that way, they could be. They would be that way. Maybe they could be. That's another way of thinking about disappointment. But if they're not that way, then they're not that way. And then I began to think that uh, think about uh, how everyone could die of bitterosity, not just in New York, because we could all die. <laughs> we could all die of greed, hatred, and delusion. And we could die of it before actually our body dies. And I really thought a lot. It was a funny way to start, and I, and I liked his particular use of greed, hatred, and delusion, or jealousy, resentment, and disappointment. Because I thought I wanted to begin by saying that I don't want to die of bitterosity. Not when I die, and not before I die, and I'm still in this life, because if I have bitterosity, an essential part of me will have died even before the rest of me does. And it really went before I tell you the Sharon story, because the Sharon story goes like this. I said to my friend Sharon, we were together, I remember we were sitting in her living room in Barry, Massachusetts, probably about 15 years ago, and uh, just having a conversation about something or other. I don't remember what preceded this. But I said to her, what do you think we're both going to be doing when we're old? And she said, I don't know. She said, probably we'll just be sitting around praying for people. And that line stayed in my mind somehow. And I think for several reasons. First of all, uh, just the way she said it, we'll be sitting around praying for people. It's kind of casual, you know, that, to say it sounds funny to me sitting around, but it's like hanging out, you know. It's not, it's not a, it's a serious business praying for people or wishing them well. But it, sound, it had that feeling of hanging out. We'll be sitting around like it's a casual thing, praying for people. It's not a simple thing to be doing. And then I thought, just as I was thinking about it today and thinking about metta practice, I thought about praying for people. I have to really talk about what each of those words mean. And the word pray is, for some people, a difficult word to think about because it brings up... Um, all kinds of thoughts about to whom are you praying or through what agency or does prayer work. So I would just as well think of prayer and praying as meaning wishing with all my mind, wishing with all my heart, which is, I think, with all my mind, wishing with all my mind. Not that I think that wishing will make it so, whatever I wish. I hope that it helps, but I don't know that. Not that wishing will make it so, or not even that if I wish with my whole mind that it will cause some other agency to necessarily make it so, cure my friends who are sick, address any other thing that I am praying for. I don't think that the wishing makes it so. I hope it makes a difference, but I can't be sure of that. What I really hope it's about is that it would mean on my part that I know what's happening. I know, actually, that my wishes are not what's pivotal. The karma of the situation is what's pivotal. It'll be what it'll be. 
but it's really a, a recognition of, in my sense, first of all, of how much I love the person that I'm thinking about and how much I care about them. And even when I'm thinking about people that I don't know, thinking about how it's true for everyone that we want to be well. It's the fundamental truth of all the human beings on this earth that we are heir to every possible uh, affliction of the body and the mind. And all of us will get something sometime, and the people dear to us also something sometime. But how much I wish that they be strengthened in that time, as I wish to be strengthened knowing about it. I was very much impressed this year uh, with uh, uh, a particular meeting. I met Anitenzin Palmo, who's a um, Tibetan monk. Here's her picture on a book called Cave in the Snow, which, if you haven't read, is really an extraordinary read. It's uh, uh, not written, it's written, written by Vicki McKenzie, told to her by Ani Tenzin Palmo um, about her life. And the uh, one unusual thing about her life is that after becoming a monk, she went to, uh, uh, she went to India from England where she was born when she was uh, 20. And a year later took robes ordained and uh, studied for years, maybe six or eight years with one teacher and then wanted a more secluded uh, practice and went and studied with another teacher in a more remote place. And then, with the blessing of her teachers, spent 12 years doing solitary practice in a cave. She came out once a year to uh, visit her teacher and go get instructions about what to do next. And, report on her practice a year in a remote cave. And uh, we sat in the living room in Ross when we met, and I was totally charmed and amazed by her and exhilarated by her clarity. Um, and she said, she's very not prepossessing about it. She said, you know, I don't like to talk so much about the cave business. It's not everybody's trip. You know, not everybody <laughs> wants to do that. And, you know, and it's not a big deal. She said, it was the right thing for me to do. But nobody, you know, there are other ways for people to become wise. It's just what I wanted to do. I enjoyed it. I liked it. So she'd come out, and I asked her all kinds of questions that um, seemed to me the, the kinds of things that came to my mind, like, uh, how did you go to the dentist? <laughs> She said, I didn't go to the dentist. Uh, <laughs> did you ever get sick? She said, yes, I did get sick different times. Then I got better. Uh, she said, the worst is once I uh, had a virus in my eyes, and I woke up one morning and I was blind. I couldn't see. And I'm thinking, she's in a cave way up in a remote cave, was definitely well before cell phones, and anyway, there's probably no coverage up there. <laughs> so she's blind in a cave on the top of the mountain, and I said, you know, what did you do? She said, well, I, it took 29 days, and then it went away, and I could see again. I said, well, how are you during those 29 days? 
She said, I was okay. She said, I thought to myself, human beings are well until they're sick. And when they're sick, they either get better or they die. So I thought to myself, I'm sick. I'll either get better or I'll die. So I'll wait to see what happens. I find that phenomenal equanimity. I was just so uplifted. It doesn't even matter that I don't have that phenomenal equanimity. That she had it lifted me up so much that human beings can do that. It's just what it is. She said, I knew either I'd get well or I'd die. And she stayed, I said, why did you come out of the cave after 12 years? She said, well, it occurred to me that was enough. And I had, I had other things I wanted to do, and she came back, and now she's established a monastery, and she teaches people. It's an amazing story. But I tell it to you most because of the, of the extraordinary depth of her equanimity and the wisdom that it afforded her, that in the middle of that, that seems to me quite a startling situation to wake up blind on the top of the mountain, remote, she said, you know, I'd, I'd wait. Either it'd be X or Y, and everything dies. I had such a good feeling from her in, uh, in the fact that her mind was unconfused. She had a wonderful vibe about her. It's really the kind of person that you like to sit next to. Thinking about that equanimity that knows everybody dies sooner or later, and everybody has to deal with it one way or another. Everybody has to deal with loss. That kind of equanimity that, that allows for that kind of wisdom is, I think, the place that, for me, reminds me that the most comfortable place that my mind is in is in wishing well for all beings without reserve, knowing that we are all in that predicament of fragility. You have this life, don't know for how long, don't know with what challenges. The ability to wish well without reserve is a fantastic human ability. No matter what happens to us, we have that as the, as the bottom line place of not being in contention with the world so that anything can happen. And we can, in fact, really find in ourselves that, that promise of the Buddha, that peace is possible. I was thinking about the two reasons for me that uh, going back to Sharon saying, maybe we'll just sit around and... It's the sitting around, it's the word around. If she said, maybe we'll just be sitting and praying for everyone, it wouldn't sound nearly as casual as we'll be sitting around. That sounds kind of like lounging or something. <laughs> and I'm thinking about ardent prayer, but maybe we'll lounge and we'll wish well. <laughs> because I think it actually depends on a certain amount of ease in the mind and body so that we don't get startled with our own predicament or other people's predicament or the latest challenge. And I hope we would be doing it. I think if we could be doing it, we'd be doing it for, out of two understandings. One, that wishing well unreservedly is the highest happiness. The ability to do that, which is a human ability, is the highest happiness. And that in order to do that, this is the second reason why it would be wise to do that, it would be a sign of wisdom, is that in order to wish well, my mind would really have to be free of 
resentment and uh, anger of any kind and uh, disappointment and uh, jealousy would really require the purification of the heart of any of those. It would really be, that sort of heart would be the opposite of bitterosity. It would be the heart free of all of greed, hatred, and delusion. And then I, I, I think we would really be able to live. You know, I, I know that in the last week practicing the equanimity meditation, sometimes people wondered about a phrase like all individuals are heir to their own karma. We talked about it a lot in our meetings together because it sounds perhaps at, at, you know, at first hearing like, uh, you know, tough for you that it fell out that way that, uh, or so that like, like people deserve it and that everybody in, inherits their karma for reasons of their own doing. My own sense is that things happen for such myriad and complex and really imponderable, immeasurable reasons. And not everything that happens that comes together in an interesting karmic conclusion is dreadful. I, I thought I'd read you a poem from this book of good poems. Really, it's called Good Poems. <laughs> good Poems for Hard Times, Garrison Keeler. This is a poem called Somewhere I'll Find You by Phoebe Hansen. So we moved from my small town in western Minnesota to St. Paul, where I had to go to Murray High, a school with more people than the entire town of Sacred Heart, and I had to walk two and a half miles every day because there were no school buses, but it turned out not to be so bad after all because a boy I met in confirmation class who let me ride on the handlebars of his bike on the way home from school, and one Sunday, my dad even let this boy pick me up to go for a walk in Como Park since after all, the paths were safe, filled with many families swarming with children, and even though my dad knew the devil went about the city like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour, he let me go with this boy, because after all, he was a Luther leaguer, and we had sung together, sitting side by side in church, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you, some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue, Look only to Jesus, he'll carry you through. But as soon as we left my house, this boy said he was going to take me to some other place I liked very much, and it was going to be a surprise. So off we went on the streetcar, and new to the city, I had no idea where we were going until we got off, and we were standing in front of a movie marquee, and I said, I can't go in. You know my father doesn't let me go to movies. It's a sin. But he gently guided me with his seductive hands, saying, just come into the lobby to talk. There, below the sign, Somewhere I'll Find You, starring Clark Gable and Lana Turner in a torrid tale of love between two children, two people caught in the chaos of war, he persuaded me at least to go inside and sit down and watch part of the movie. And if I didn't like it, we could get right back on the streetcar and go back to Como Park. So I decided, since I was already in this lobby den of iniquity, Surrounded by posters of Jezebel movie queens and devilish leading men, I was doomed anyway, so I might as well go into the darkness with him 
and even let him put his arm around me and hold my hand, and that's the way it's been ever since. <laughs> I love that. Isn't it great? You're waiting for something to go wrong, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Magically, not every turn of every bend of the road ends up in trouble. I read that one several times. It picked me up so much. It's really like a children's fairy tale, and they lived happily ever after, and we think, yeah, 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 we know that doesn't happen, but... That particular, everyone is heir to their karma, means things happen. For various reasons. Some reasons that we put into motion, some large, large reasons, who knows. They are what they are. My mind is peaceful when it's not in contention with anyone or anything. Uh, every time I say that line, I need to go back and say, really, really, that doesn't mean that there aren't things in the world that I don't object to. There are plenty of things I would like changed, and plenty of people, truth to tell, I would not miss. But... <laughs> But it, ill will, ill will is painful. Ill will is the opposite of benevolence, and ill will is painful. I am the principal beneficiary of my own goodwill. I am the principal beneficiary of my own goodwill. I think bef before we look at the Metta Sutta, which we'll do in a minute, I want to talk about kindness came up in, in James's speech last night. And I think that the mind of kindness, with, which is another word for benevolence, it's like a plainer word, benevolence, like a fancy word, but kindness, really the kindness that knows that this is really what the world needs. This is really what life needs, is kindness. I sometimes tell the story of um, the weekend I spent. I spent a weekend on a mindfulness retreat before the 14-day retreat that was the beginning of my serious retreat practice. Several months before, I went on a weekend in, uh, in the South Bay in a private house and it was a very, very difficult weekend. I wasn't well prepared for it. It was very crowded. It was full of people I didn't know. We were all sleeping together in one room. But the, there were so many things about it that, was, that were uncomfortable for me. I didn't know there wasn't going to be caffeine. I had a monumental headache for the entire weekend. I didn't really get the instructions. It was too hot. My husband had convinced me to do it. I spent the weekend preparing the the long speech of indignation that I was going to give him on Sunday evening when he came to pick me up. And several weeks, several months later, I was back on a plane on my way to Washington State to sit for 14 days. And I am fairly convinced, first of all, that it probably wasn't as terrible as I remembered, and there must have been something that spoke to some part of me that believed it. And also, I remember with great pleasure that on the mantelpiece there was a, one of those redwood polished burls that you buy in, in state parks that say sisters of friends forever or home sweet home that are 
that are burned into, etched into them. And there was this redwood burl, and I, and I was doing my walking meditation, walking back and forth in front of it. And what it said is, life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? And I thought to myself, that just sounded so exactly right. And I think in my mind, I put together, if that's what these folks are teaching, then I need to be here. I really think it was the presence of that piece of redwood burl that changed my life. The Metta Sutta is one of the things that I carry with me. I don't normally take uh, prepared things with me when I travel to teach because I don't know who the group is going to be or what's going to come, or mostly. And mostly I like to make up what I'm going to talk about on the spot. But I always take the Metta Sutta with me because one way or another I'll talk about it in the course of the time that I'm there. And um, among other things, one of the things that I'll say is that I think it has the story of the whole of the path of practice in it. Really, the Buddhist path of practice is uh, sila samadhi panya, virtue practice, mind training practice, and wisdom practice. And I think they're all part of the metta sutta. We'll look at it together in a minute, and I think you'll see that as well. And um, I often, when I'm about to talk about it, tell people that when I first read the Metta Sutta, which has to be more than 20 years ago now, uh, I had a rather cavalier and, uh, I must say, shallow response to it, Under, uh, really not a good response to it. I, uh, it's so clear in its mandate, uh, love everyone, omitting none, no matter what. And however much I felt inspired by that mandate, I know how difficult that is. I knew how difficult that was. And I thought to myself, all very well and good to say, but there are no instructions here for how to do it. It just says, do it, like the Nike ad, just do it. And uh, I, felt kind of, I felt sort of clever about saying that to groups of people. I feel embarrassed now that I said that, because I, say, I think it does say how to do it. I think it says how to do it in every single line and sometimes I like to parse it out line by line. I don't know if we'll do every line tonight, but some of the lines. But I really think it's the whole of the practice path. I want to start by telling you that I think there are two phrases in it that are the key and pivotal phrases. One of them is the phrase, omitting none, that that's the mandate wishing for all beings, may all beings be at ease. And then it gives categories of beings, but then it says omitting none. And that's really the difficult part because for many of us, most of us, there are so many beings that we easily wish well to. You've had all that opportunity in the last several weeks to have experience with that. And then there are all the beings that we don't know at all, but we can imagine all over the world and think of them and even visualize people fishing in the China Sea or farming wheat in, the, in Siberia or
getting married in Hawaii or having a baby in South Africa or attending a dying person in Brazil or planting a garden in Minneapolis. People all over the world do the same things. They make relationships, they make families, they take care of their children, they take care of their parents, they take care of their kin, take care of their community. Human beings have an aesthetic. They plant gardens that they don't even eat just to look at. All over the world, people do the same kinds of things. And it, it just really picks me up to, to think about people all over the world and think, not only do they do the same things, but they want the same things. They want to be able to lie down in peace and get up in peace and have another birthday party and take a meal with their family. I think sometimes we get confused about how much we think we need in order to be happy. I don't think we have so many fundamental needs. If someone said, all of your family is well taken care of, there is medicines for your needs. And you can relax. Nobody will harm you. Nobody's, nobody's going to hurt you. Maybe the whole world could sit down and have a peaceful meal and get to know their neighbors. We get confused by being frightened. So it's easy to think of all the people in the world that are just like the people that I know. They're the people that I don't know, but they're just like the people that I know. What's actually hard is to, the omitting none part, the certain number of people whom when we think about them, we think, okay, everybody in the whole world, but not them. Not this one and not that one, because globally they do this, or personally to me they do that. And so it's a very, very... Um, it's a seriously daunting proposition to say that no matter what, omitting none, I will so keep wisdom prominent in my mind, that wisdom that says it, my ability to be completely at ease and happy and content depends on my ability to have no bitterness in my mind. doesn't change whether or not I like those people or I don't like those people. But to be able to not wish them ill. So the other line, I think, besides the omitting none, which is such an important phrase, is the line in gladness and in safety. Let's look at the sutta for a minute together. You'll notice that there are 12 lines that are morality training. Read them with me. You have, you have a copy of the sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, decent and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing 
that the wise would later reprove. And in safety. Okay, stop, stop, stop. That was the virtue training up to there. And my sense is that what that means is that that life of completely living the fully virtuous life, doing nothing of which the wise would later reprove, is the cause of both gladness and safety. That to live with morality, to live with ethicality, is a cause of ease in one's own mind. I think somehow when I live complete, if I could live with the sense of living completely ethically, I would know that my, my, my mind and my heart, were, which are really the same, are in a benevolent position. Because all of the forms of virtue that are the paramis, that are the um, particular perfections of the heart that the Buddha is said to have developed before the lifetime in which he uh, was Siddhartha Gautama and had his realization as the Buddha, would mean that they were fully there. It's an interesting thing to think about. I was thinking about it today. The story that's often told is that in many, many lifetimes before his lifetime as Siddhartha Gautama, he uh, uh, was, uh, before even a human being, an animal and different animals. And in all of those previous births, he had perfected these particular qualities of virtue that enabled him, qualified him to be ready in that life for that understanding. They're kind of the preparation for understanding. And it's interesting because I think to myself, sometimes we think of them as the fruit of understanding, that if we really were to understand that the, 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 the depth, the ubiquitous nature of suffering in existence, we would be so kind. We would not want to do one single thing to add to the challenge and the difficulty inherent in human existence. So it's interesting to think of it as the precursor and both the fruit of enlightenment. I thought I'd read you a story, actually. There are various stories. Uh, the, the Jataka tales are stories that are children's stories since the time of the Buddha. And they're stories about the, the lives of, of uh, uh, lives of particular animals who displayed tremendous virtues of one type or another. And uh, although it doesn't say this was a Buddha in a previous lifetime, uh, you're really meant to uh, intuit that this is a previous lifetime of a Bodhisattva and then a Buddha. This is a story that's um, a Jataka tale that's told about the virtue of determination, resolve. If you probably have heard stories of the Buddha sitting down on the night of his realization and saying, I won't be moved from this place until really I have understood fully. 
and of having the forces of uh, Mara as uh, uh, in person uh, coming in uh, the person of um, something that would be frightening and not having fear arise and something that would be perhaps uh, erotically arousing and having his mind remain quiet and untroubled, unmoved with his great equanimity. And him saying, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. It's a great story of his determination. I like that part where uh, of thinking about the Buddha sitting down and saying, I am not getting up until I am fully awakened. And at the risk of having you laugh, I will tell, because people usually laugh when I say this, that sometimes when my mind has been in a really not a good shape, I've sat down on my chair or on my zafu when I was sitting on one, and I have said, I am not getting up until I am enlightened. And people laugh because it's, they say, really, you don't think you're going to be enlightened? But, you know, I actually think that perhaps I'll be enlightened about the cause of that particular suffering. And I can come to the end of that particular suffering. And why should I not say I'm not getting up and I'm enlightened? It's not like lightning will strike me for hubris or something. It's very inspiring to say I'm not getting up until my mind is completely clear. What have I got to lose, really? I'd like to inspire you to sit down and say I'm not getting up until I'm completely clear. Why not? So here's a story about determination, that kind of tenacity. It's called The Monkey Who Would Not Give Up. The Buddha, in a prior incarnation as the chief of a band of monkeys, steadfastly protected his tribe from being discovered and harmed by the people who lived downstream on the Ganges from the huge and wonderful mango tree in which they lived. One day, a mango fell from the tree and was carried by the river to the bathing site of King Brahmadatta, who, enchanted by the taste of the fruit, traveled with a search party and found the tree. The monkeys overheard the men planning to kill them and eat their meat as well as the mangoes. They were terrified. The chief of the monkeys, determined to save them, tied a reed to his foot, leapt across the river and barely managed to grasp a branch on the other side. Run across the road, he called, and over, run across the reed, he called, and over my back, 80,000 monkeys ran to safety. The monkey chief's back was broken. King Brahmadatta held him as he died and asked who he was. The monkey said, I am their king, and I love them. I do not suffer, since by my death my subjects are free. Remember, it is not your sword that makes you king. It is love alone. Thereafter, Brahmadatta ruled with love, and his people were happy ever after. Is that good or what? Isn't that good? I love that. I also love that the uh, moral of that story, or the denouement of that story, is, it says, determined to save his people, so it is about determination. But the message at the end is it's love, actually, that triumphs. It's love that saves. It's love that is the necessary ingredients. It's kindness and compassion. There are 10 virtues 
that the Buddha in previous incarnations presumably perfected. They are generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, patience, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. And they each, if, if you study about them in the text, presumably uh, manifest as a slightly different variation of ease. Uh, they all, in my view, uh, manifest as that kind of ease through the medium, through the intermediary stage of, um, of wisdom, of some understanding. For instance, generosity is said, uh, the practice of generosity, which cultivates the habit of sharing, ends in contentment. And I think it's the contentment of knowing that we don't need to hold on to things. We don't need to hold on to things. That a person who can share and let go has the pleasure of the generosity and also the great pleasure of not needing to hold on in fear. I love the idea of monks going out every day with their begging bowl and sharing what's left when they get back to their monastery and having the faith that tomorrow there will be more people to again put food in the begging bowl. There's a contentment in the mind that isn't frightened about being needy, which links to generosity. If you think about one of the other paramitas, say take the one uh, patience, which is said to uh, uh, cultivate the habit of being able to abide in this moment out of, again, wisdom. When we're patient, it means that we really have gotten it, that what we wanted to have happen now isn't happening now, that, that we really understood. If it could happen now, it would be happening now. If it's not happening now, it's just not happening now. That's the way it is. <clears throat> so patience is actually a, a permutation of wisdom. And uh, the, the, the quality that it manifests as, or the virtue that it manifests as, is the virtue of tolerance. Not happening yet, but I can wait. Or it's still happening, it hasn't gone away yet, but I can wait. Have a mind that's content and tolerant and clear and tenacious. It's interesting. The quality that comes from truthfulness is intimacy. The virtue of truthfulness is intimacy. If, we, if we're able to tell people what's really true and not hide, and they're able to tell us what's true, we develop intimacy with them. There's no, nothing keeping us apart. And the last two of them, loving kindness and equanimity, the last two of those paramitas, the people who are staying into the next retreat will know that, may know already, but will soon find out that that retreat will particularly focus on the ten paramitas. The last two paramitas, loving kindness and equanimity, the virtues that they are said to cultivate are kindness and compassion. But I think they're all kindness and compassion. And I think they're all variations of love.
So if you think about going back to the sutta again, that um, doing not the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. There's that lovely phrase, uh, the bliss of blamelessness. And wishing. Now we'll read together again. We'll read together all the way down to one should sustain this recollection. So we'll see what's the recollection that we should sustain. And this is the practice part. This is the practice, what we are called upon, enjoined to do. This is the prescription. Because we are feeling wise and gladness and safety, we could wish, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. May none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. Okay, there we are. That's the instruction. You'll notice, by the way, that in the end, the lines we just read, are all the positions in which we are day after day practicing mindful attention which is itself an act of compassion, a compassionate response to the situation. Sitting, seated, walking, seated, standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is the recollection I, 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 I read into this that, that, uh, that, uh, going back to the line about just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, the intuition that we can share as human beings, that everyone feels that about someone. Everyone knows that this life is so precious. To be able to feel into it how anything that any of us do, including anything that any of us do, impinges on everyone else in this incarnate world. I can't think of anything that we might want to do but add to the world blessings of compassion. May you be well. No matter what, I think the wisdom that sustains it when it says, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, comes from a profound understanding of karma. That being cannot be other than what they are, nor can I, nor can anybody be other than what they are. And it's that understanding, I think, not the action that they're doing or did, 
especially if a person is doing something dreadful, the fact that they somehow have the karma and the karmic factors that are causing that really dreadful thing to be happening is a cause for great compassion. I think that's all held up by wisdom and by seeing really the truth of how things are. Let's read the end of it together. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. You know, the fixed views that I think about are this is good, this is bad, he is good, she is bad, this is... Those are always limited views. I think the larger view, it couldn't be other. Things lead to other things, lead to other things. Way beyond what we could ponder or understand. By not holding to fixed views is such a relief because then you don't have to defend them and remember who's on your good list and your not good list. Remember when we did that um, practice all week long, we said now pick out somebody you love a lot, now somebody you love a lot, but maybe not totally, but almost totally, and then maybe somebody else, somebody that you work with, so they're not, they're not your best beloved, but you love them anyway, a little bit, and then the familiar strangers that you care about them, but one has the sense, a lesser bit. What if we could do without any of that? We wouldn't have to have all those lists of who moved, and then somebody could do a certain behavior, and they could go from this list to this list, and they used to be on the other list, and now they're on this list. People often tell me, especially when they're doing metta practice, that their life partner is on all the lists. <laughs> and, and you know, it goes back and forth between all the lists. But what if we could do without the lists, and we would have the relief of not having to remember, and not having to remember the story of why we put them on that list. He did this, she did that. It would be such a relief to be finished with that. I think that that's the great wisdom. It would be a relief not to have to remember who we have something about. Whatever happened, happened, and it couldn't have been otherwise. I think that's the great truth. I understand that line, by the way, uh, the clarity of vision being freed from sense desires. I understand that as um, freed from the imperative of sense desires. Freed from the imperative. I mean, as long as you're alive, people feel like we feel like eating, we feel like getting up and stretching, we feel like moving around, all kinds of things that healthy human beings feel like doing. But I think it, for myself, I am reading that these days as freed from the imperative of those is not born again into this world. I always, because I don't know for sure about lifetimes after this one, 
I, I think about being reborn into suffering in this life as often as I am, that every time my mind gets stuck in, in a grudge that it can't deal with or a regret or a recrimination or an anger or a jealousy or any form of bitterness, I'm stuck in it. I am um, reborn into a world of suffering. And when uh, I stop telling myself the story about it, I'm freed of it. it disappears. It's like you get stuck and then you're free because it doesn't have any story to support it. What I often end up feeling when I uh, read the Metta Sutta or teach about the possibility of having that kind of wide vision that realizes, really, what a, 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 a fragile thing this life is. You never know. And for all the talk about the difficulties, it's full of beauty and delight and wonderful things. and. The Buddha called this the most precious life, the best of all incarnations. The best both because, uh, as, as I understand it, both because in this lifetime there is the challenge and the possibility of the purification of the heart because we have this uh, capacity for intuiting how other people feel and how we feel, and understanding our own suffering and the potential to be free of suffering, our own experiences of freedom from suffering, and also that we can experience quite on the level of life itself, the preciousness of it, how amazing it is when it does go on. And to be grateful for it. So what I'd like to do is end with a poem by Billy Collins. It's called Passengers. At the gate, I sit in a row of blue seats with the possible company of my death, the sprawling miscellany of people, carry-on bags and paperbacks that could be gathered in a flash into a band of pilgrims on the last open road. Not that I think if our plane crumpled into a mountain, we would all ascend together, holding hands like a ring of skydivers into a sudden gasp of brightness, or that there would be some common spot for us to reunite, to jubilize the moment, some spaceless, pillarless grease where we could, at the count of three, toss our ashes into the sunny air. It's just that the way that man has his briefcase so carefully arranged, the way that girl is cooling her tea, and the flow of the comb that woman passes through her daughter's hair. And when you consider the altitude, the secret parts of the engines, and all the hard water in the deep canyons below, well, I just think it would be good if one of us maybe stood up and said a few words. <laughs> or, so as not to involve the police, at least quietly wrote something down. So now we'll sit.
The Buddha, when he sent monks out to teach after they'd done a period of training with him, said, go forth and teach the truth in the idiom of the people for the happiness of many out of compassion for the world. Thank you.